0: whether you're across town or across the globe. And uh, you were listening to Abigail Spinner McBride there and uh, that uh, jaunty little cut uh, uplifting us tonight. And I think so many of us do need to uh, feel uplifted, is Let the Way Be Open. Well, uh, tonight uh, we are continuing uh, the series that I started in early October where we uh, honor our ancestors and uh, we're about ready to wrap it up. And instead of having a um, pre-recorded show playing for you, uh, as many of the Honoring Our Ancestors' uh, previous episodes were... uh, pre-recorded shows where I had spoken to uh, Lane, uh, Lane Redmond or Margo Adler or Patricia Monahan or Shakina Mountainwater, uh, tonight uh, we are actually paying tribute to um, one of our ancestors to whom we owe so much. Uh, uh, her name might not be quite as well known to you. Uh, as some of these others that I've just mentioned, but I'm sure the title of her book uh, will ring a bell. Uh, And uh, tonight we have writer and editor Jack Dempsey. Uh, He's with me tonight uh, to honor the life and work of Barbara Moore, poet and co-author of uh, the beloved book, The Great Cosmic Mother, And um, I'm so happy to have him here with me tonight during this season when we honor our ancestors. Jack is a close friend of uh, the California-born writer, Barbara Moore, who passed away in January 2015, and uh, she came to fame uh, in around 1985 when she teamed up with Monica Stu. and I'm going to have to ask Jack how to actually pronounce that. I've never heard anyone pronounce Monica's last name, which is spelled S-J-O-O, uh, uh, that was, Monica was uh, Barbara Moore's co-author uh, Monica was a UK feminist and, um, and the two of them penned the aforementioned landmark work Of natural and women's history uh, Because Jack worked with Barbara's family To bring out the little known facts of her life He's here to share them And to explore uh, Barbara Moore's words and ideas Her works and personal letters So Uh, I am looking forward to that, and um, I know if you're listening live, and it is actually November 10th for you, uh, you are probably reeling uh, from the unfortunate way things went with uh, the election Tuesday night. Uh, I am going to be talking a little bit about that. Uh, In fact, um, even though i know most of you know i was a bernie sanders supporter uh, i certainly did not want donald trump as the president And I have been posting a lot of great articles on my Facebook page that I would really encourage you to listen. Well, some of them you can listen to. Some of them you can read. Uh, There are great articles there to really help you understand what happened. Uh, Because you know what? Don't don't be fooled by what the corporate media is telling you, that this was about racism, this was about sexism. No, no. This was about economics. And, um, again, if you go to uh, my Karen Tate Facebook page, uh, there are some great art- articles there. Uh, Robert Reich uh, wrote in The Guardian, and he has an article there, The Dems Once Represented the Working Class, Not Anymore. Naomi Klein has an article that I've posted on my page, The Dems embrace, uh, the Dems Embracing of Neoliberalism, uh, That Won It for Trump. Uh, There was Glenn Greenwald on Democracy Now! Uh, He had articles about how Sanders would have been a stronger candidate against Trump because he offered an alternative, and he was also speaking the language Trump was speaking from the standpoint of, you know, we've had enough of the establishment, enough of the status quo. uh, Glenn Greenwald also has another great article called The Failed Policies of the Democratic Party. So this isn't about bashing Hillary. Necessarily, you know, this is about reality check, and uh, I think it's really important that we know what's going on and not blindly fall in line. I know I did it. I used to blindly follow the Democrats. I thought, you know, they were, um, you know, the ones uh, that were so much better than the Republicans. And yes, uh, on on some social issues they are, but um, when it comes to the economy. It's uh, it's all about corporatism. The Democratic Party is uh, the Republican Party. They're the Republican light, uh, while the Republican Party are the Republican extremes. So we have no left anymore, and it's really important to understand that. You know, this isn't about rubbing salt in the wounds or anything like that. Uh, We can't fix things if we don't know what's broken. We really do have to shed light on things. And... uh, you know, we always say, oh, why, why do, uh, you know, the people who vote for Republicans vote against their economic interest? Well, you know, a lot of us Democrats have been voting against our economic interests as well. And I think maybe now, maybe now, um, more of us can wake up. So please, I would encourage you to go and look at some of those articles um, They're really good. They're easy to understand. If you don't know what neoliberalism is, they will explain it to you. It's important to know. Uh, And when I finish my interview with Jack, uh, I'm going to read a nice piece from Pantsuit Nation, which uh, whether you were for Hillary uh, or whether you were for Bernie, uh, I think this will do your heart good. Uh, I think it starts to look toward tomorrow. And uh, I really have to say, I think the news media and the the ruling elite of the Democrats have just been going crazy with their fear-mongering, just crazy. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but it feels that way to me. Uh, They're no better than Fox News fear-mongering about liberals or fear-mongering about brown-skinned people or Muslims. They are doing the very same thing. And, you know, that's not to say Trump isn't a lot of the things they say he is. But the fear-mongering has been ratcheted up to such a level, uh, and it's irresponsible. It is really irresponsible. And this article from um, Pantsuit Nation was posted there, uh, written by Brindley Goodger. I think it will really make you feel better. I think it gives some context and perspective and I would really just encourage you to stop listening to the fearmongering. Okay, so uh, that's all I'm going to say about that for now. Uh, we're going to jump in and uh, talk to Jack Dempsey here. He is calling me from Greece. It is 4 a.m. in the morning uh, in Greece, and I am so grateful to him for um, – you know, staying up and uh, talking to us tonight. He is actually going to be returning to the show uh, three more times uh, in the next few months. We have some really interesting topics we're going to talk about, and I'll let him tell you a little bit about that before we uh, say goodnight to him uh, or good morning to him, as the case may be. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about him first by way of his bio uh, and Barbara Moore's uh, and then we'll start our chat. So uh, Jack became a writer and editor in New York Publishing after his novel on Minoan Crete uh, called uh, Ariadne's Brother in 1996. He earned his Ph.D. at Brown University in Native and Early American Studies and produced four recognized books and two films about them. Jack's recent work explores the Minoan sacred astronomy and calendar house, Uh, That's his uh, his book title, and he lives in Crete today, lucky man. Uh, Jack uh, was also a close friend of California-born Barbara Moore. M-O-R, who we're talking about tonight, paying tribute to. Barbara, who passed away in uh, January of uh, 2015, first came to fame in 85 as co-author of a landmark work of natural and women's history called The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. I never knew the subtitle, and uh, I love that, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. From that year, Moore and Jack began to share their work as Barbara lived a life of almost constant poverty, but always keeping engaged with feminism and publishing incandescent works of poetry. Today, those are known as works of extraordinary voice, vision, and nightmare as radical and healing experiments, and the quest for a language that really reflects what we have been, where we are, and what we can hope to become. So because Jack worked with Barbara's family to bring out the little-known facts of her life, he's here to share them with me and you and to explore Barbara Moore's words and ideas, her works, and uh, her personal letters. So, Jack, welcome to the show.
1: Karen, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here because of all the great people that have been already part of this series. Uh, I'd like to say good morning Uh, from the Minoans' home island when Western civilization actually began with uh, women at the center of it. And uh, good evening to everybody in California and other time zones.
0: Okay. Well, I have to tell you, I so envy you being there in Crete. Um, I did travel there uh, in the nineties. Um, did a twenty-four day tour of Greece. Uh, it was back when I was leading sacred journeys, and of the twenty-four days, we spent about three or four days on Crete, uh, and uh, it was it, w- it was lovely. It I don't know. There's an isolation element to it because it's so far away from the other greek islands sort of out there uh in the mediterranean it feels like sort of all alone i mean does it ever feel like you're living on another planet
1: all the time all the time but you know uh, there's something else as an old cliche that no matter where you're from once you spend some time in crete you're homesick for it for the rest of your life and uh, I started coming here in the 80s. That happened to me. And uh, after a long career in teaching and writing and so forth, I thought it would be my most productive step to simplify my life. I don't have a car or anything, and we live next to the ocean and uh, feel invigorated by all her moods. So it's just a fantastic place to live. And uh, there's just hist- every level of history is here right before your eyes all the time.
0: Mm. Well, you know, I, I remember how not to, not to mention
1: the natural beauty.
0: Yeah, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, Greece is such an incredible place. I'm sure most people uh, can pull up in their mind's eye. You know, you would see these uh, wonderful uh, white villages with blue rooftops and, you know, all the wonderful archeolo- uh, archaeological sites. Uh, Delos comes to mind, um, you know, the Heraklion Museum. Uh, I mean just uh, just an incredible place i I have said before I, I, in, I interviewed Laura Perry. Uh, we spoke about uh, uh, Minoan crete, uh, her group here in um, the united states i don 't know if you know of her work, but they have actually sort of reconstructed um, the Minoan religion for pagans and uh, you know as best as one possibly could, you know, and they 're actually Um, reconstructing that as a tradition and anyway i told her once i said you know i have this dream when i retire if i can take three months off i think i really want to head to greece and i want to just sit with my laptop by a window looking out over the mediterranean uh maybe uh, in in some little apartment over a taverna uh, you know, where you can watch the fishermen come in, you know, uh, every day. I mean, it just, I don't know, I'm making it sound so romantic. Maybe it would be a terrible thing to do, having an apartment over at Taverna. Uh, but uh, I don't know, it sounds good to me.
1: <laughs> well, remember, the word romantic is itself a kind of a ghetto in which the West has been taught to put its idealism uh, and seal it off from the way that we really, you know, um uh, in other words, the way you feel closer to what the human norm is supposed to be. Uh, we take a nap in the afternoon. We work hard all day and into the evening. But we have priorities here that are a little bit different, and the Cretans are very proud of those differences even today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would imagine life's a little bit slower, you know, different uh, different priorities.
1: Uh, yes, people do come here to slow down, and that can be very frustrating if you're a person of uh, industrious nature who wants to accomplish things. But on the other hand, uh, it, I, I'm just finding, well, if you have to err on one side or the other, speed or slowness, it, I think it's a lot, it feels a lot healthier to uh, have to suffer through the obstacles of slow culture uh, rather than suffer the abuses of hurry all the time. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're making me think too of that movie. I'm trying to remember the title, but it was about Shirley Valentine, and she escaped oh, yeah. the, you know, escaped the pressures of her life and her her uh, cranky old husband, and went on vacation uh, in one of the Greek islands, and then she didn't want to go home. And uh, I don't know. I think I can yep. kind of imagine that.
1: <laughs> well, I mentioned um, again the the. the uh... The separating off of quote the romantic. I mean, what is the essence of the romantic tradition? It's a tap- deep attachment to nature, an emotional approach to life, uh, uh, a, a valuing of the common everyday social fabric, uh, a strong sense of memory and history, and, and a real unstoppable optimism, no matter what, in the present day toward the future. Uh, who wouldn't want to feel and live that way? I, I think. Still, as I said, the beginning of Western civilization was here, and mm-hmm. I'm hoping that it's going to begin here from here again. Canossa uh, yeah. was the Vatican City this day, and uh, in one of our later programs, we'll get to that. Uh, it's a profoundly amazing subject. I'd just like to throw out one quick reference in. Something to you said that you said. Uh, I, I'm getting to know Laura Perry uh, via a Facebook group called. Ariadne's tribe, and it's a really dynamic group that shares scholarship, history, uh, religious visioning based on the Minoan traditions. Uh, a wonderful group to belong and be in dialogue with
0: yeah she she really does know her stuff and uh and you know Jeff sure just on a on a technical note here um I, I know I have the tendency to do it myself, so I just want to sort of make you be conscious of it. You know uh, when I start to talk, I get a little animated and sometimes I move my my uh, mouth away from the mic. Um, try to make a concerted effort to um you know put your uh, you know put your mouth as close to the mic as you can, okay.
2: I
1: sure. will. is that better now?
0: Okay. Um, all right. So um, let's uh, you know let's go ahead and, and and get to what we were going to chat about tonight, uh, uh, Barbara Moore. Uh, so first, Jack, tell me Monica's last name. How do you pronounce S J O O?
1: The best approximation that I've heard is su, Saying the J kind of like a Spanish usage, uh, like a Y. su.
0: Okay, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, that 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 is the first time I've ever heard anyone utter that last name. Thank you. Um, so, how did uh, Barbara and Monica uh, first come together? I mean, you know, collaborating on a book is a big deal. You have to, you, you know, you have to have a really good working relationship to do something like that.
1: Uh, that's for sure. Their their links came out of uh, Western. Uh, California Feminism in uh, the early 1980s. They uh, were introduced to each other by the editor of a journal then called Woman Spirit. Uh, Sue was traveling as part of uh, her artistic career doing these really visionary, dreamlike paintings, uh, drawing on feminine historical and cultural traditions, and Barbara Moore was really struck by that work uh, while Monica Sue was struck by uh, the intensity and the new form, if you will, of Barbara Moore's work and her scholarship. So they began to pool resources, you might say, and decided it would be a high-impact multimedia uh, good idea to create uh, what we'll get into tonight, which, uh, I, if I can find a phrase for it, would be the, the historical basis for human progress. <laughs> they They were adamant that we are going to relearn our entire relationship from the ground up and thereby get healthy again so that we can survive and, and be happy. Right, right.
0: Well, you
2: know, I've often thought that.
0: You know, it, it, it does feel if we're going to create a, norm, a, a new normal, we, we have to rethink everything, you know. We're not going to do it with just some little tweaks around the edges. And in a way, um, you know, and, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, you know, going back to the politics again, but in a way it almost feels like uh, maybe this all had to happen in order to build something new. You know, um so anyway, maybe we'll we'll get into that later, but uh you know I, I it's it's like the old stuff you know people have to see it uh with with you know see, you know see the the fault of it, see why it doesn't work, admit that it doesn't work, and start looking for new options, and uh it sounds like from what you said that they were working on this and, uh, you know, a, a long time ago?
1: Well, the past quite simply tells the present what is possible in the future. What have human beings accomplished, uh, either well or badly? Uh, what can we learn from that going forward? And that's what Barbara Moore's whole career, every one of her productions, from prose to poetry to articles and so forth, was about, uh, I just want to say one thing up front as we get into this, that uh, if there's one phrase for all the enormities and complexities of Barbara Moore's work that could sum it up in any way, it would be the name of your show, Karen. It's called Voices of the Sacred Feminine. This is exactly the core, and pun intended on that, because core was the young goddess uh, at the center of a society. The recovery of the voice of what she calls the sacred, and you call the sacred feminine, is... Absolutely key, because once we begin to see with accurate, scientific, natural, and cultural historical eyes, we're going to get a whole completely different perspective on what has happened to us. And finally, yeah. if people are worried about, uh, or t- intimidated by the word radical, which is always attached to Barbara Moore's work, well, th- rethink that for a moment, because when you go back to the root, uh, and I shared this journey in a parallel with Barbara Moore, you come away with the most incredibly different, positive, and uplifting sense of what human beings can accomplish. So knowing that and that it was changed from a contextual natural center to a book-based textual uh, obsession that we have today and that misguides us, we can realize that it can be changed again. So that's the hope and that's our threat to the powers that be. And so I'm hoping tonight... Uh, I'm telling you, I, I, when people hear Barbara Moore's voice in her poetry, her articles, comments, et cetera, I think they're going to be electrified to think, I have to start learning all over again. But it's going to be right. a, a wonderful experience.
0: Well, and, you know, and, and I haven't heard what you're going to say yet, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I, I guess I want to presuppose that um, I would imagine you know, I, I well, let me say it like this. I've I've come to think of myself and some of the women who, oh, and men who comprise the voices of the sacred feminine. Uh, we probably seem pretty radical to some people, you know. Um, so it it, it but. To us, it's just normal. To us, it's just, um, well, how could we think any differently? It's crazy, uh, you know, to buy into these um, patriarchal, status quo establishment ideas because it's all about domination and power over and, you know, capitalism and uh, these things don't, that don't really serve our quality of life necessarily, that don't really speak to what are we here to do, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I, I guess I'm just saying it's like Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus would have been a terrorist in his time. Um, I I mean, I I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, too much of hyperbole to say, Um, you know, but we look at, you know, his message as a no-brainer, but he rocked the boat, you know. Uh, You know, he rattled the cages and upset the status quo, and I guess whenever you go against the ruling um, establishment Whether you're Howard Zinn Or Noam Chomsky Or Barbara Moore uh, You know they, they, they Or Bernie Sanders You know they think you're radical
2: Well I have a couple of uh,
1: Rubrics that we could hang over the door Tonight in this discussion The first one is just a very simple First sentence from the great cosmic mother Quote In the beginning was a very female sea Unquote that's where we started, in the ocean, and that's where Barbara Moore starts. Now, it's inevitable that you're going to come through the Minoans of Crete in the process of this recovery because the Minoans were the longest, most successful ancestors that we had at the very beginning of Western civilization. So, when again you reorient yourself to some of these facts, You cannot help but sound radical because you are working at the root. And, uh, again, I'm just tremendously excited to even begin to open these things out. The second rubric, if I may throw it out, uh, it's going to take 60 seconds or less. But I found a wonderful uh, invitation for your listeners tonight to stay with us. Uh, It's from Barbara Moore's own production online called Rad Victorian Radio that she created in 2000. And she writes as follows: Is it okay if I just read this? Sure, in? yeah,
0: go, go right ahead. And remember, just speak as speak as loudly and as close as you can to the mic as as possible.
1: Okay. And Barbara Moore says a call for kick-ass female discussion forum. Anyone out there beyond the fem yups, the fem bots, and the Freudian Frenchies? i. e. any females who do not define themselves as auxiliary or subordinate functions to a patriarchal religious, cultural, economic, and or psychological system of text and analysis, holy book and behavioral codes, in the name of facilitating, more or less, smoother functioning of job, marriage, God's approval, academic career, sex, relationships, book contract, street survival, all of the above. Rad Victoria and Rio's position. Time for fearless retrieval of a reginal feminism's anarchic holism, the rowdy deconstructionism of all naturally thinking wild wild women. Every woman is a rebel, Oscar Wilde said, anti-bible, anti-marriage, anti-capitalism, anti-state, essentially a pro-evolutionary female-respecting pagan tribalism based on ecologic and cyber principles of maximum health of earthly habitation via the courage of human imagination. Oh
2: my god! Mm -hmm. Boy, you know, uh,
0: uh, I I I often talk about finding your sacred roar. I could hear her roaring.
1: (laughs) Yes, and you know the the one adjective that reappears again, again, and again in uh, what writing there is out there about Audenmore is the word volcanic.
0: Ah, yeah, and uh, and I like you called her poetry incandescent. I've never heard uh, I've never heard uh, that uh, um, you know that that word used to describe poetry before. I like that though. Um, well,
1: she said, and I'm hoping we'll be able to share this tonight later. She said in her advice to quote serious writers out there for the future. She said, "Bathe your senses and your perceptions in the realities." That are around you, it's going to scorch your tongue, burn your ears, and then you will perhaps be ready to begin to try to speak about it. And that's what <laughs> she was doing. That's where her voice comes from. Yeah,
0: yeah and and you know it's like once you uh, once you open your eyes to all of this stuff, you can't unsee it. Um, you know I was uh, no. I was re- reading this book recently <clears throat> called uh, Female Rage and um, they kept using the Medusa archetype uh, throughout the book, and they were talking about the Gorgon. You know, normally, you know, in patriarchy, we think of the Medusa and the Gorgons as these women who turn you to stone for looking at them. However, you know, these women who wrote this book were almost saying – um let's uh, let 's rethink that let 's uh let 's reinterpret the gorgon you know it it 's almost as if the uh, sort of like what I just said you know uh the gorgon helps you open your eyes and once you open your eyes uh you can't not see. Uh, these things anymore, you know. You can't hide. Then, you know, now they are a reality. Now you have to try to figure out some way to connect the dots, to reconcile them, um, you know, so that there's you don't have a cognitive dissonance uh, or a cognitive disconnect in your life.
1: Well, that dissonance is extremely painful. I think it, it, it makes you could say non-artist people depressed chronically, and it makes artists, people, alcoholics and self-destructive because it's a, it's a tremendous burden to try to be acting and producing in the world when you feel radically disconnected. But uh, I think Barbara Moore is, again, a, a, a tremendous role model and inspiration for anyone who's uh, undergoing that because what she's going to show you is almost innumerable wellheads, you might say, of new knowledge, again, from natural history to human evolution to cultural evolution to historical change. And if anything we need right now, it's historic change. So mm-hmm. we're going to need a very positive a very positive basis for doing these things if they're going to work at all. Negativity, obviously, it only works in the worst sense. That seems to be where we are. But this is something that hang in there because the, the spiritual food that 's in here is going to keep you going, make you happy and politically socially effective at the same time, yeah,
0: um, so Jack um, I, you know I know we sort of haven 't gotten uh, you know deep into her stuff yet, but was there any particular thing or event that um, you know really sort of shaped her imagination uh, that put her on this path? I mean, can you point to Uh, a writer or, you know, was it just a personal evolution? Uh, What what was it? What was the catalyst?
1: Uh, Well, if I could have 60 seconds to give a quick outline of her time coming up to the years when she wrote Great Cosmic Mother, I I think the answers to that and more will emerge. She was born in October 1936, San Diego, California, her ancestry, she said, was black Irish, Welsh, French, and German. Her mother used to sit her down. She was a, her mother was a jazz pianist, and around age four, she used to sit Barbara down at the piano and teach her uh, how to play, how to manage multiple rhythms and so forth. They used to also go to the movies, the great Broadway shows, and come home and try to play the music together. Uh, they also went to the zoo a lot, and she had tremendously powerful experiences of the animals there, a tremendous identification. She felt their presence in her body. Meanwhile, Barbara's father, uh, she, there's only a very few references scattered through her works. Uh, she calls them in a letter to me a real kind of Archie Bunker type all communists, all artists are communists, and all intellectuals are homosexuals, and so forth. Uh, but there's one other thing that people, I think, should hear. A little thing, her dad was a self-employed radio repairman who had a garage, kind of a shop in their house. And in a late work called Hypatia, which I hope we can get to tonight, here's what she has to say about her father and her environment. This is a quote from the poem. She says, your father doesn't want you to have those. My mother slid back her bedroom closet door, pointed in silence to a dozen red-bound books on the high shelf books of knowledge, of adventure, classic, fairy tales, folk tales, legends, poems of ancient history, mythology. It was 1942. I was six. It was the only comment she ever made about my father, a rare visit to their small room in a small house, in a small world, in a war. Your father doesn't want you to have those, but I had them, and I had them all. So there's Barbara, very young, uh, attached to several artistic traditions already, Uh, Moving up through age seven, her parents divorced, and then at age 12, her mother died, so she went to live with her father and his new wife, her stepmom, through her high school years. Now, when Barbara turned 19 in 1955, one day, by luck, she happened to meet actor James Dean. It was about a month before his tragic death, and I guess they met more than once because apparently he looked at some of her early writing, and he said to her, she never forgot it, it's important to me that you continue writing. So that's what Barbara did, reading everything. You asked me about influential authors, and I can only say that her influence was the library. I mean, you have the impression that she is just the most ravenous reader imaginable. She spent about a year uh, living in the mountains uh, of the southwest as a beatnik, so to speak. She had a a brief one-year marriage that had no children, and she started writing for local newspapers, essays, and so forth. So by 63, she's 27. She enrolls at San Diego State. The first professor she meets, in contrast to James Dean, tells her, please don't ever try to do anything serious. Very traumatic kind of a wound that that left in Barbara. Uh, She had her first son in 65. Uh, He's a fine young man and he's a brilliant musician today. Uh, But they had to live on welfare because, again, Barbara was living the the very uh, ideas about feminine sexuality that you want to hear tonight. But she quit school in 1969 without getting her degree that she hoped for in linguistics because right there, that was the fracture, I think, for her. She realized how much was not being talked about in those damn history and cultural history classes. So she begins uh, living in the New Mexico area, Taos, etc. Her first daughter is born when she turns 35 in 1971. She's giving public talks uh at, uh, uh, how, how would you say it, less advantaged high schools for students and so forth. And then in Albuquerque, moving into the 1970s, her second daughter is born. Uh, she had one cryptic hint that she endured uh, two cancer operations at this time. And then, 75 to 97, she begins working on a thing called A Song, A Song for Tralala. la a the first work I can find where Barbara really establishes her her new style, the thing she's going to be known most for, and she calls it Femme Polemo Poetics. It's a combination of feminist-rooted understandings, political uh, interventions, because that's inevitable, and poetics, because she's a poet. Ms. Magazine squatted on this piece for two years, uh, and then she published it eventually. But uh, as she moved into her 40s, that's when she encountered in the Southwest, living back in Taos, New Mexico, Monica Sioux and that movement. So we could stop right there if you want to. And I'd like, if possible, to have people hear uh, a piece of trouble uh, that is a bit of Barbara's voice, what she was doing then. Is that OK?
0: Sure, yeah. Let's see if we can. Uh, how, uh, well, let's see what you're going to do if we can hear it
1: OK. OK. And who is Jesus? What else does he do? Can he sing? Can he plant corn? I saw a picture of him once on the dome of the sky, looking down dark and fierce at the green earth. And who is Jesus? What else can he do? Can he scrub floors? Can he make the bread? They say he suffered nine hours of pain for the world. Tell that to any mother. What man, son of what father, king of what desert, savior of what flesh? Can he mold pots? Can he make the rain come? Can he find his way home naked after being raped? Can he wail like Janus? Can he burn in fire after 2,000 years of dying? Can he laugh and hand death a beast? Can he know me? Who is this Jesus? What is he next to any woman's blood-red truth? No wound in a man is big enough to burn the world, to return an earth. So now here is our old mama in the junkyard and I'll stop right there because it takes us directly into what happened to Barbara Moore, uh, kind of as a result, especially of publishing, uh, the great cosmic mother. So you tell wow. me where you'd like to go with this, Karen.
0: Okay. Well, well what, uh, you know, that, you that, that was incredibly powerful. You know, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not crazy about poetry, uh, and that kind of writing necessarily, but that makes me want to read more of her stuff. I just love her
1: fearlessness. It's it's absolute. Uh, more and more, I love that pun, you know. Uh, but that is average. That kind of intensity is average across Barbara Moore's work. She was just. On fire as these things begin to light up in her. Again, it, you have, I hope people begin to understand it's a positive spirit that fuels her anger, her volcanism, you might say. It's, sure. It's a tremendous, a tremendous, you could say, well, pregnancy with the positive heritage that we are missing to our almost suicidal consequence. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, in patriarchy, women have been Uh, you know, made to feel that to be angry is something, uh, you know, that's not acceptable, you know. And uh, But who does that serve but patriarchy? It's a
1: disempowering thing, right? Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. It it completely cuts us off from the most healthy response we have to the pain we're in. And this, again, is another kind of quasi-obsession in Barbara Moore's work. She said, why don't you scream? Or as Mm. Terence McKenna once said, he said, if we could feel what we are doing, we would stop it instantly, just as an animal pulls its paw back from a fire. But somehow we are dedicated to a symbolic representation of the world that is upside down, backwards, and (laughs) round. So that's where we are. Um, Let me share one other thing. We'll go right into Cosmic Mother It's very important that uh, I feel, anyway, that that people get a fundamental sense of who Barbara Moore was and the eyes that she was looking through. Uh, I talked about her seeing the animals in the zoo, uh, her managing through music of multi uh, polyrhythmic kinds of um, uh, artistic expressions, and that's kind of the in and out of the difficulty sometimes of her work. You simply have to read it slowly, read it aloud. Uh, instead of worrying about how jammed up everything looks on the page and so forth, and you begin to take the most magical journeys you've ever had. Now, this is something Barbara Moore said very quickly about her own evolution out of those sources. She says, That's the way I'm a mystic. The whole world around is a theater, a work of art. I see the wounds of the earth, but for me they are also poems and mirrors where we're living within this allegorical theater. My mysticism is the consciousness of matter, that we live within a conscious body. Mystic communion means a communion within this body of oneself, of the earth, atmosphere, and things, of the universe of quarks and fields. Within this mystic body, all things are in symbolic communication with each other. Everything makes symbolic statements to and about everything else. Tigers, snow tigers, giraffes, leopards. They were so aesthetically overwhelming and satisfying, the sensation of the living, pulsing power of the world, totally within the context of being within a body. Under a microscope, a stained potato was a gothic window. It was aesthetically pleasing and gorgeous. At every level, if I get an aesthetic hit, I don't make a distinction at that point between aesthetic and mystical. It's so gorgeous, meaning something there is an artist long before me in the first cell. That's nature talking, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Right. Well, and and you know what it makes me think? Um, You know, we've lost our connection with nature, uh, you know, to a large degree. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, patriarchy, Abrahamic religions have beat that connection out of us, have made us think it's not important. And just hearing her uh, words...
1: Let's grab what? that thought right there, though. They, they haven't. That heritage is aching within us. It's still alive as it ever was. We just have to connect with it again. It's aching within us. It's not dead at all. And that's the rage that you see in patriarchy, the rage to make it stop, and they can't do it.
0: Yeah. Never will. It, yeah, and, and I, you know, I think my, my point is um, how irrelevant they hmm. would become once people reconnect to that. You know, that would be their high,
1: so to speak. Absolutely. And do you ever ever go to a nightclub and you hear the music roaring from inside, the pounding, pounding beat? And while you're standing there in line talking with your friends, your knees are flexing. Your body is already in harmony with that rhythm going on inside. And so that's kind of a metaphor for where we are. We have this rhythm pounding inside us to be healthy, healthy, to be living in harmony with nature, etc., but we have this incredible distraction that's leading us away from it all the time, and it hurts.
0: Right, 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 well, I, I remember once listening to this really great band, and i this this uh, what i 'm about to describe to you uh, isn 't something that happened often, but it was so profound i 've remembered it, and I will probably remember it always. you know there was just there were there was something about the music, something about the beat, the rhythm, uh, the sound of it i you know during that song i I sincerely had this sense. Of being energy, in um, in in connection to the energy that the band was making, if you know what I mean. It's like we were just this this interconnected um, wave of energy, totally in sync, and it that was a crazy feeling. I mean, it was almost, I guess, like being on a trip. Um, you know, Karen, it.
1: it that- I was just going to say, Kamis, yeah, I'm so, uh, it makes me want to break in, but that's exactly what we are. That's exactly where we are. You described it so well. That, that's what we really are. But again, we are completely dist- distracted from and dissuaded from uh, all that by an artificial creation that, uh, uh, to go back to the rocking knees metaphor, our bodies are going to be wanting to do that no matter what. So we might as well go with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Jack, I, it sounds like there's a story. Did did uh, uh, it? I mean, look, I know all authors complain about their publishers, uh, but did Monica and Barbara have? Um, did something go go badly? Uh, 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 you know, uh, with uh, a great cosmic mother and the publisher, was there some problem?
1: Well, uh, in, in a later renewed preface to The Great Cosmic Father, Barbara Moore directly describes uh, the years of creating the book. She was living uh, between Bisbee and Taos and uh, Albuquerque uh, along, uh, in sync with different family contingencies taking care of her children and so forth. Uh, and she describes them huddling together in a cold uh, mountain house that they would be tap, tap, tapping away. Now what happened was, Uh, They, through some connections with Monica Sue at a book conference in England, they got some interest from Harper and Rowe, who then wanted them both to expand the book into a full treatment of its subject. They went ahead and did that on their own dime, you might say, submitted it to Harper and Rowe, who took it, and then Harper and Rowe gave them an advance of $5,000 apiece. That knocked Barbara off of welfare, and at the same time, then Hopper and Roe in the next mailing sent them a bill uh, for the permissions work, the photography releases, and all the different uh, uh, back, uh, back matter projects that, in, uh, that are involved in a book. So Barbara was suddenly living on the street, and that's why that line uh, from the first reading I did, she says, here's old mama in the junkyard. So Barbara wow. was suddenly living on the streets of Albuquerque and Tucson at age 50, uh, sleeping in backyards among junkies and criminals and police raids and all this kind of stuff. And uh, this was 1985 to 87, and this was exactly the time when Great Cosmic Mother was coming out. So until wow. any of the royalties from its until any of the royalties from its very vigorous uh, early sales went through four editions in the next few years, uh, reached her, uh, she was really just. From the letters I began to get from her at that time, uh, they are in this beautifully gnarly, old typewriter kind of awful script, and yet they are so intellectually burning and alive and sympathetic with the people around her, uh, you can't imagine. So it was a searing experience for Barbara that uh, really, in one way or another, continued through the rest of her life. But that's part of the ferocity of her dedication. She would give up anything. Uh, to get the work done, there was something in her that wanted to be born, and she sure got it done well, you know it's amazing
0: if she was living under those circumstances that she could uh stay so dedicated to this work i mean um uh, obviously uh her her passion must have been intense, and i mean what an what an amazon you know uh what what how uh, what what a foremother uh, to be so dedicated, uh, you know, to get it done in spite of the adversity. So, so Jack, how, how do you think that poverty um, informed uh, her development?
1: Well, it certainly, as I mentioned, radicalized it in the sense that she wanted to go back to the root and undo all, if possible, or begin to undo or provide a basis for undoing the nightmarish horror all around her, what she what she saw, given her historical perspective, which came out of and was substantiated in Great Cosmic Mother's chapters,
2: uh, drove
1: her to say, "This is well not acceptable, not necessary, and it's killing us." So she became, I, I just think, radicalized in compassion to the suffering around her, the needlessness of it, uh, to 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 continue to do what she was doing, and to, in defiance of that first professor who told her never to do anything serious, well, God damn it, she was going to do it, and so that takes us right into the 52 total chapters of The Great Cosmic Mother. came out in 1987. Uh, she spends the, the four sections, Women's Early Culture, the Beginnings, Women's Early Religion, second section. And then three, the synthesis, uh, 23 chapters called Women's Culture and Religion in Neolithic Times, taking us from the Stone Age into the Bronze Age. Then finally, her her turning us around to see it as we see things now, part four, patriarchal religion and culture. Uh, So the the enormity of the scholarship in Great Cosmic Mother. Again, uh, look at the comments from people at Amazon.com, for example, and they'll say, Why wasn't my education covering this? And that's exactly where Barbara Moore started, isn't it?
0: Right, right. Well, and and I, I have to admit, this was not one of the early books I stumbled onto. Uh, but I do have it in my library, and I am going to read it now, uh, even if it 's material I already know. I have a feeling that there's it's it 's going to be worth a read and just knowing Barbara better, you know to hold that book in my hands and know what it took for her to bring to birth that book uh, i mean just just brings that much more. A uh, meaning and appreciation, uh, you know, to Great Cosmic Mother.
1: Um, yeah, and I think uh, after we sample some of uh, Great Cosmic Mother itself, too, one of one of the further uh, issues and I think contributions for sure that Barbara accomplished was uh, her various departures from mainstream feminism, because uh, the suffering that she saw all around her. Uh, again, it was, it was a searing experience, and she was not going to forget that, or the duty of American letters to speak to the reality that most people live. Um, right. So she was going to be in in uh, a lot one of the mainstream uh, feminists of her time who were and and still are out there. So we'll right, get right. to that. But um,
2: well, you if, know, we're you like uh, I. I well, ahead, just, just
0: you know let's just do a time check here. Believe it or not, we have already been talking probably forty five minutes, and we probably yeah. have about twenty thirty minutes at the most more to go um, okay. so what what would be the most important uh, uh, you know issues or or points you want to make sure. We don't miss. Um, would it be her argument with mainstream feminism, or do you want to get into Hypatia?
2: Okay, uh, I have,
1: let's, let's put it this way I have a, a quick outline of some main concerns that Bala writes about in her poultry, in Great Cosmic Mother, in her various letters, etc. And then I think people really would dig just hearing a bit of the very first page of Cosmic Mother because they're going to see how Barbara Moore synthesized all her natural history and cultural history research into an an immensely enjoyable narrative that, again, you can go and check her out on at any point and and discover a new wellhead of historical inspiration. Okay? Okay. So, Barbara Moore, one, she's talking about the life of nature, from the micro to the mega levels, the processes and dimensions of it, and re-knowing nature in the facts of scientific research, because this has liberating implications for humans. The questions, are we going to survive this? And B, how badly do we want the real thing? Because there's a price to pay. second, she lit a lot of fires to purge feminism of, uh, with nature-based human liberation for women and men. She was tired of the second hand, of the politically correct, of people writing from shame and inhibition. And these are her words in a, in a challenge here in a positive way. She says, we're inspired by words. We realize art, recognize nature as our own. We go out to comprehend jungles. We speak with fire. What we were forbidden to gaze at—the pit between our legs—and know the void is not necessarily hostile or indifferent. Another concern of hers: the of being a. Are
0: you there, Jack? Uh oh, Jack. I don't know if you can hear me, but we have lost you. Um, I don't know if you did something. Uh, you s- are still showing up on the switchboard, but we cannot hear you. Okay. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of tweak. Oh, wait. Okay. So he hung up, and I think he's probably going to call back in. Um, just a reminder to everyone that I'm talking to Jack Dempsey um, in tribute to Barbara Moore, uh, who was the co-author of The Great Cosmic Mother. Uh, this is we're toward the end now uh, of our honoring our ancestors series that I started in uh, early October, and I believe uh, there might be one more after after Barbara Moore. I think we might have another show. Uh, this Friday. If you haven't been tuning in, um, you might want to. You can find some of these rebroadcasts on my show page uh, where I've talked to Margot Adler, uh, Lane Redmond, Patricia Monahan, uh, Lorian Vignet, Lady Olivia Robertson, um, so many, uh, oh, Isaac Bonowitz, um, you know, so many of the women and men uh, who we owe so much. Uh, who have brought us so much, who sacrificed so much to um, bring us this alternative uh, history. So what I'm going to do is, um, while while I'm waiting for Jack to call back, uh, I am going to tell you uh, about Joe Carson's new book, uh, Celebrate Wildness. So let's consider this just a little uh, commercial break. So, uh, Dana Corby in her blog, The Rant and Raven, uh, talked about Joe Carson's new book, Celebrate Wildness. She said, when people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they didn't take into account but should is feriferia. Ferifaria, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots, meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other. Based on Fred's vision of the divine feminine, the sacredness of eros, and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything, it also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy faith. Fred intended that Ferifaria should lead the world into a paradisal future in which freedom, eros, and play are the core values, where that built by human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fae romp among us. Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness, says Dana Corby. A wistfulness for the idealist I was, we all were, back when we and the world and the magic were all young and fresh. Though it's a short book, Celebrate Wildness is uh, 115 art laden pages, so don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time, let it sink into your subconscious, and what bobs to the surface will be wondrous. Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper, and it's available for $45 from ferraferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A.org. So Jack is back with us. Uh, I'm going to unmute him now so we can pick up where we left off. Uh, I am trying to unmute him. Hi, Jack. You're back. Sorry about that. Yes, I'm terribly
1: sorry for that. I don't know what happened. It just ended. But anyway, uh, we were talking about some of Barbara's uh, main concerns being a public female intellectual and so forth, a woman of action. Uh, She's in a great American tradition that way. And a rage to heal, as I've been mentioning. She quotes Carl Jung uh, on her Radical Victorian Radio website. She says, one does not become enlightened by imaging figures of light but by making the darkness conscious. Uh, It's the secret of psychotherapy, you might say, too, to to put into language what is torturing us so that we can get beyond it. Uh, So these are different, even within the first-rate scholarship factually of Barbara Moore's work, these are the, the kind of soul food promises that people will be rewarded by when they enter the tough world of her writing.
0: Okay, okay. Um, so you were you were going down a list. Um, had you were were you uh, were you done with that, or was there still more about that? Yes. Uh, there,
1: there's one more point that's I think worth making, especially in the context of the voice of the sacred feminine. Um, we may probably forget. Well, if you look around, and I had a direct experience of this myself, but if you look around. Uh, This is not an overstatement from Barbara Moore. She says the death of the female is the contemporary patriarchal religion. Now, 170 years ago, uh, uh, an American health nut named Edgar Allan Poe wrote in 1846 a little essay called The Philosophy of Composition, in which he told American poets that the death of a beautiful woman is the most poetical topic in the world, and the great poets will be those who sing as a mourner of her. That is what, in a sense, Barbara Moore has done, but she's turned it inside out. She has answered Poe and reversed that to say, the life of beautiful women is going to be the most poetical topic in the world if we're going to survive. Mm, She's turned that complete tradition all around. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah and And I can see the point you know that uh uh gee i I'm not even sure I have the language for it, but just um that characterization of Poe is pretty revealing um yeah it it's kind of hurts my heart but uh wow um well so, as henry,
1: so, as henry james said as Henry James said, Edgar Allan Poe is not an achievement, he's a symptom
0: Yes. A symptom, a symptom <laughs> of patriarchy, a symptom of uh, maybe patriarchy ha- a, a hatred of yes. hatred of women, um, maybe resentment of women. You know, I've always thought that um, you know patriarchy um, subjugated women because they were really at the core uh, jealous and resentful. You know, because they were not the life givers.
1: Barbara Moore in 2012 has a work called The Theater of Cruelty, where she talks, to, talks back to Antonine Artaud and other filmmakers. This is what she says right to your point, Karen. She says in his poetry, For the men need suckering, they say. Women must stop our work of change, of poetry, and succor them. Hurt boys needing this mother, hurt by their mamas, No. It was the bad father because a bad big progenitors fucked them in the ass. Women must become a sponge, mop up such pain. The fathers did it. We must clean it up. And then our daughters, buggered by the poor sons in therapeutic retaliation for crimes of the fathers, mop that up. The rapes and abuses of daughters, what are mothers for? And then save the animals. For we begin beautiful and we are made corpses. Luminous, we end in ash. Do not applaud criminal tides as you drown.
0: Mm, Wow, uh, she—you could tell this was a woman who suffered a lot, who uh, felt the empathy for the pain of uh, of the women. Uh, all around her. You know, uh, it's I was I'm taking this cultural transformation class with Rien Eisler Center for Partnership Studies and you know, we were talking about um you know, one of the things that came up in conversation was what women have had to endure to survive patriarchy. And I'm reminded of it hearing mm-hmm. uh Barbara's words, you know. Um, You know, it is uh, Ava Park Who runs the Goddess Temple down in Orange County In her queen classes You know, she always says um, uh, You know, patriarchy loves the maiden You know, the sexy, frivolous, carefree maiden uh, The sex partner, the sex kitten And they love the mother who gives and gives and gives Until she can't give anymore Uh, But man, they sure don't like the queen they, you know, patriarchy doesn't like it when a woman comes into her own power.
1: And uh, there's another amazing writer of the same ilk as Barbara Moore, Susan Griffin, also Californian. And her one to me, her masterpiece is a book called "Pornography in Silence: Culture's Revenge Against Nature." And right to your point, Karen, Susan Griffin points out uh, in in the mind of pornographic or that is patriarchal culture. That female, that young girl, represents exactly the summation of the the force of life itself. Now, yeah, they worship her up and down and uh, every way that you can imagine, but there's uh, there's always a simultaneous murder of that figure in real life, in symbolic art, uh, everywhere. That's the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe, and that's what Barbara Moore is trying to reverse. And how does she do it most of all? in work after work after work of her adult life. She is reimagining uh, a female who can speak, can feel, can remember, can envision, and encountering the realities of patriarchy, the, the, the sadomasochism on a cosmic scale that is trying to extinguish this out of a nihilistic failure of its own belief system. So again... Uh, I I think it's terribly important to help people realize how positive is the underlying contribution from Barbara Moore on every level of her writing. Um, I wonder if I could share just the first half a page of Great Cosmic Mother to give people a flavor of that. Sure, yeah, go right ahead. Okay, this is the first page of Great Cosmic Mother, co-authored by Monica Sue with Barbara Moore. In the beginning was a very female sea. For two and a half billion years on Earth, all life forms floated in the womb like environment of the planetary ocean, nourished and protected by its fluid chemicals, rocked by the lunar tidal rhythms. Charles Darwin believed the menstrual cycle originated here, organically echoing the moon pulse of the sea. And because this longest period of life's time on Earth was dominated by marine forms reproducing parthenogenetically, He concluded that the female principle was primordial. In the beginning, life did not just date within the body of any creature, but within the ocean womb containing all organic life. There were no specialized sex organs. Rather, a generalized female existence reproduced itself within the female body of the sea. Skipping a paragraph, the first penis appeared in the age of reptiles about 200 million years ago. Our archetypal association of the snake with the phallus contains, no doubt, This genetic memory But what she goes on to do in research uh, Citation after citation Karen is to Lay out in this really Pleasantly reading Narrative the Overwhelming evidence that This is how life began on earth And why it's still as it were Rocking in our bones to Express itself and so Great Cosmic Mother is laying out The different historical bases for You to believe you betcha that this is the, the factual case. We are as healthy as ever, uh, and the more so that we get back in touch with what we have been. It's not a step backward. It's a step forward for us to go back and retrieve these things.
0: Wow. Um, really, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke here. Uh, I am going to have to pick up that book, um, I, I am most definitely going to have to pick up that book because I think there's a you know, probably a lot of rich stuff there that maybe I've never heard uh or thought of before. It's she just sounds incredible, I have to say. Um so so Jack, um Hypatia. Uh let's skip to that as, you know, our time is starting to grow uh you know, grow short. Um It's going about, so fast. I know, I, I know. <laughs> That's how it happens. Um, and and, and you, you gave us so much uh, good material we could go over. We, we're not getting to all of it, but uh, most of it. Um, so do you want to talk about Suicide Girls or Hypatia? Uh,
1: well, Hypatia would take in more of more, <laughs> there's that wonderful pun again, uh, if I could put it into some quick context, I mentioned that uh, when Barbara was 39, uh, she started to work on that one I read already, A Song, A Song for Tralala, which again begins her adult work with the scenario of a murdered female uh, surrounded by the nightmare of patriarchal culture. She continues through the writing of Great Cosmic Mother all her poetic work, all her involvement with feminism. This is from the street. This is from dire poverty, by the way, uh, into the 90s. She creates a work in 94 called Linguistic Duplex, following, again, the murder, kidnapping murder of a a young girl in California. Um, Moves to finally, through the uh, California coast to Portland, Oregon, where she lives the rest of her life, and continues, even from uh, age 65, to produce over a dozen more major works, of which Hypatia is one and for me, her masterpiece. So sure, we could talk about Hypatia a little bit because it's archetypal of Moore's work. Uh, I'd also feel it's very important to let people hear at the end uh, a quick statement of encouragement from Barbara Moore about, well, if you're a citizen, an activist, an artist, keeping your spirit alive, why you should, even when you feel the doubts about uh, either your actions or your artistic production.
2: Uh, she okay. is an
1: incredibly powerful figure, all right? So,
0: so well, Jack, Hypatia, is that a poem or is that a book?
1: Hypatia is Barbara Moore's long poem following or you could say restudying the life of a woman named Hypatia who lived around 355 AD <clears throat> excuse me, to 415 AD in the Western Roman Empire. She was the w- librarian at the Library of Alexandria, the, the gathering place of all the ancient world's learning. But she was there right at the time when the first uh, Christian evangelical uh, bishops were putting the early church together. And mm-hmm. consequently, well, had to be had to be removed from such a public place of the influence of knowledge. Yeah, uh, I think they more, ended up skinning,
0: skinning her alive with uh, shells or something. I think that's how she met her Yes, dragged
1: her dragged her through the streets, humiliated her every sexual and political way that they possibly could, and, yeah, exterminated her, basically. Barbara Moore quotes Bertrand Russell, who says, uh, in describing the same uh, episode, he says, Alexandria, after that, was never troubled again by philosophers. So Mm -hmm. this was their effect, to destroy the library at Alexandria, our entire inheritance of knowledge from the ancient world in every field of uh, scientific and humanistic study, that was under the sun at the day. So to just try to describe Hypatia, it's a multi-layered work that describes something like this. <clears throat> On a literal level, it's a woman, and I'm going to read right here from Barbara Moore's what she calls working notes about it. Hypatia comes to consciousness in a copy shop circa our time. Gradually, via copying documents and resensing memories, she recalls her past inclusive of the past lives of other Western women, punished precisely for their powers. Two, embodied by this recollection into now, Hypatia absorbs our gloomy, gestalt ambience in which the West's liberated woman moves, sometimes exhilarated, sometimes trapped, free, and lost. This middle part is muddled because now is messy. The ambiance is one in which great changes can occur because forms and orders, both material and psychic, are so fragmented and in flux a female oceanic matrix, Barbara Moore calls it, speaking of the soul of this character, Hypatia, that can churn into conscious acts of fractaling and recombining DNA and knowledge and imagination. So the copy machine, this banal object, becomes a kind of metaphor, mechanized, uh, for the human soul that is trying so desperately to remember itself in a context that is so discouraging to that. So... Barbara Moore ends up at the end of this work, for all this kind of glorious uh, memory of episodes from her own life as well as from other historical women, she comes to a kind of a doubt about her own work. This is late in life. She says, I believed, we all did believe that women's writing had, could have, and did have this kind of world-evolving power inherent in the awakening experience described, knowledge of the past, the present, the possible futures. I tried to write Hypatia as if I still have such belief, but I don't know if I do, or consequently, if it works. Well, I would add to that, for Barbara's sake, that what she may be missing there in that despair is that it works as we complete her act of writing by hearing it, by reading it. And that's what we owe to you, Karen, for giving her voice this form in which to speak. That's the completion of the communication act, is it not? A writer writes visions for us, and if we don't hear it, well we can't we can't benefit from it so i'm hoping again to uh share just a quick bit of that that is luminously beautiful if you'd like to hear a bit of the poetry from Hypatia where Barbara Moore actually uses a personal experience of her own to describe what she's after
0: okay well we just have to take a a, a short excerpt because we're we're running you know time is running out jack
1: okay okay i appreciate that um I'm trying to just quickly calibrate whether, uh, let me see, would we have time for both? Um, Okay, well, let me set the scene and go right to the last lines. She's she's remembering herself as a young girl on a beach in Northern California where they went surf fishing at dawn, drank a little wine, etc., probably with her family. She went off from the group, climbed up into the hills, and fell asleep just beside the ocean, and suddenly was nuzzled awake by a horse. There was a woman riding on horseback, and she said the woman... He thought you were dead. So Barbara Moore rises up as if she's, well, being reborn, and she says, I rose in a full sun, turned to look out down to the sea, two California gray whales coming north from Baja, the larger lead whale just below. As I stood up, it breached, heaved over, dived, disappeared in a deep lunge of ocean, then lifted up, rose, huge motion, slow rocket out of the sea, straight up, the absolute sun dazzling him all the way to the flukes, and he hung there, stopped the world in wild salute of joy forever. Then in another slow time sank down, dazzling, dazzling, into the sea, reappeared far north, spouting, laughing, rolling as the companion followed, due north home. To breed I turned, woman and horse were gone, the synchronous kiss of the horse, awakening a dead woman, the perfect salute of the whale, the earth, and the sea. Can you see there, Karen, how the self, the natural world, the spirit are vibrating all in one place? For all the horrors in Hypatia, that's the pearl that Barbara Moore wants us to feel so we can live it again.
0: Hmm. Well, Jack, you've convinced us that uh, Barbara uh, was an incredible foremother and writer and a visionary and inspiration. Uh, besides the great cosmic mother, um, is her poetry available uh, even in used, um, you know, used books or something on Amazon?
1: Well, her, if, if you've been following, as I have over many years, her poetic production Uh, Much of what I have came directly from her. A lot of it appeared in Sulphur, in Signal, in Trivia. She has a number of websites uh, uh, with her name associated uh, to it, Uh, but right now her works are very much scattered except for her late works, the the latest uh, from Oliver Free Arts Press called The Blue Rental and The Victory of Sex and Metal those are her first two real uh, published books you might say other er, everything else is scattered in different journals but you can find a great deal of it online yes right now okay i know a couple so, of people so, who want to do collected editions
0: yeah i was i was about to say um i mean as easy as it is to self publish now um you know maybe somebody should do that you know Um, So, Jack, before we go, um, a little bit about you. Uh, Your website is ancientlights.org, where you explore Minoan Crete, uh, Native and Early American, uh, where you have lots of articles, artifacts, images, music, videos, uh, learning resources. Um, Why don't you speak a little bit about that and just sort of briefly uh, touch on the next few talks uh, you're going to be doing here with me on Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
1: Uh, Well, sure. The ones we've talked about doing uh, would be in December, we'll be talking about Minoan civilization. In January, we'll be talking about what happened to the Minoans after the great catastrophes of their so-called downfall. And then later, uh, probably the month after that, we'll be talking about early America, Native New England, and uh, the historical tradition that's available to us from there. Um, if I may, though, Karen, I would like people to hear as a closing, and it's very short, uh, Barbara Moore's own statement to them, because I feel, especially in the light of yesterday, uh, they're going to need something, somebody to to push them forward, and I really think this would help. Should sure, I put let's, Barbara's let's, voice before you once more?
0: Sure. Yeah, let's do that as part of the closing.
1: Okay. In 2009, in a place called Book Forum Online, Barbara Moore wrote this little piece called Serious Writing in the World of Today, but it's for people, not just writers. She says, our planet is a theater of sublime cannibalism. Our lives have always been sustained by the deaths of other living things and vice versa. It's an organic recycling process that within the self-regulations and conservations of nature works. As a run amok global factory and marketing system based on a corporate cannibalism regulated solely by the sharky appetites of capital, Earth becomes a factory of horror. Writers respond to this by curling inward around personal pain or reaching backward to connect with the larger agonies of human-made past history. But the enormous poem in such a world exists now and everywhere, inside us, there, performing sleeplessly 24-7, Tragic epic, colossally cruelly funny drama, deadpan news items from hell. No extant literary convention approaches it. The writer, poet, and citizen must see it for what it is without euphemistic self-protection, look long and hard without blinking or descent into memoirist babbling, and it will pour molten into your eyes and your brain forever. And then, with your eyeballs burnt out and your tongue charbroiled, you proceed to try to write, Play your sacrificial part in this terrible feast. All the repressed gods and or monsters from all the repressed mythologies ever on earth are now returning to join you. Hmm.
0: <laughs> nice. Nice. So, so, loaded question here. Do you think, what would she have thought of Hillary Clinton as the uh, first woman president? Do you think she would have voted for
1: no, I don't. I, I think she would have been voting her conscience, which uh, in our p- political language would have been the Green Party, uh, because it has even a chance of putting Earth first. You know, Barbara Moore was very disaffected by, with Harper and Rowe because the title she wanted for Great Cosmic Weather was simple, The First God. She calls Mm. Earth the only God we know. She says you can't get serious until you recognize that the Earth is the only God we have and can know. So um, I I think she might have been a little bit, uh, well, more than a little bit impatient. Why? Because, well, to quote Susan Griffin again, if you believe in a delusion, you still have to face reality. Now you have to make a choice. Am I going to come to terms with reality? Or am I going to go even harder into my delusion until I force it to make it work? Well, I feel that Barbara Moore would have said it's another phase of we're going to try to force this. It doesn't work, but we're going to do it even harder, uh, and that's going to be very costly. I think she would be grieving right now that we just don't still, excuse me, fucking get it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you know I so get what you just said, you know, because I I kind of fall in line there too. You know, I'm not a conformist. You know, I might be able to face reality, but I'm not going to become a slave to it. You know, I'm still going to fight the fight to change things till we get to that new normal and just keep, you know, using that septmet tenacity to press press on and press on, you know, like uh like Durga you know, fighting evil, um, you know, because we have to. What choice do we have? Uh, if we don't do it, then we're a sellout, aren't we?
1: Well, Barbara Moore's closing to the Great Cosmic Mother, we have to evolve We return to the cosmos only by becoming lovers of life rather than victims, voyeurs, and policemen. We must become beings who don't want to control life but only listen to its music and dance it. She says we turn from one gesture to another. You can do that as an ordinary citizen or as an artist wherever you can and want to. But she says this is our only alternative to mass death. So, I mean, here's one sentence that she leaves you with. The patriarchal God has only one commandment, punish life for being what it is. The goddess also has only one commandment: love life, for it is what it is. Wow,
0: Jack, you have done a stellar job bringing us Barbara Moore. Um, I just want to thank you. There's, there's uh, so you know, much I, more. I know, I know, but sorry, our time there's is there's
2: up. So much more. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: no, no, I, I understand. I'm just celebrating Moore's achievement. is it, It's staggering, and when these. Collected works come out uh, We're going to stagger even more At the, the joy that you've heard In her work tonight uh, That she brings out of such darkness It's there for everybody To draw strength from Believe me
0: Well, I am, I am totally impressed I am so sorry I, I honestly had not heard much about her uh, And uh, what, uh, you know I'm, I'm glad you are rectifying that um, So thank you Thank you so much For bringing her life to light uh, you know, for so many of us. And, um, you know, when when you find out, uh, you know, w- w- if that collective work uh, is actually going to be available, um, please make sure you get back to me and let me know and uh, you know, maybe we can continue the conversation. But until then, I look forward to chatting with you next month uh, to continue conversations about Minoan Crete. Uh, that is a favorite subject uh, among my listeners. It always gets great ratings and lots of downloads and listens. Uh, so I look forward to, uh, to that and hope you have a nice uh, Thanksgiving
1: there in, um, in Crete. Thank you very much, Karen. I can't be more grateful than I am to you for this opportunity. And I'm telling you right now, Barbara Moore is looking down with a smile, too, because nothing could be more appropriate to the the, the re-empowerment through her work that that is there for us than to have a show called Voices of the Sacred Feminine. That, That is exactly the essence of what she's doing. So I know she's very grateful, too.
0: Well, I am blowing her a kiss. Right now, thank you, Barbara, and thank you, Jack, uh, for uh, bringing thank Barbara's you. life so vividly uh, to to me and my listeners. And, uh, and And you try to go get some sleep, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thank you very much, Karen. And we'll be talking again soon.
0: Okay. All right. Good night. Good night. Well, uh, wow! What a great show. And uh, it feels like to me, Barbara is quite. A jewel uh, to rediscover So I thank Jack uh, For that And uh, I do intend to make time uh, To pick up The Great Cosmic Mother And Google Barbara Moore Uh, I really do like That fierce uh, Fierceness of her writing The courage uh, The uh, You know she just gets Right to the heart of it She doesn't mince words You know she's not afraid of the ugliness And I think we have to look at the ugliness in order to reclaim the beauty, and that makes sense to me. Um, So we are going to get to that uh, piece I wanted to read you from uh, Pantsuit Nation, but first I want to just tell you real quick who my guest next week is. Uh, Next Wednesday, Barbara Wilder will be on the show, and uh, we are going to be talking about Money is Love, Transforming the Energy Around Money from Fear and Lack to Love and Abundance. So um, I think that should be a good topic. Uh, None of us ever have enough money. And when you consider 70% of women retire in poverty and women have not achieved uh, pay equity, uh, you know, we need whatever help we can get because, you know, this is all about energy, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, we need to change our perceptions because our perceptions uh, shape our world. That is just the reality of it. So uh, now, uh, Brindley Goodger uh, wrote this piece uh, that I think will make everyone suffering from Tuesday night's uh, debacle. Uh, I think will make everyone feel better. Uh, this came from Pantsuit Nation by way of uh, a scholar friend of mine, uh, Candace Kant, I believe, posted it on my page. And uh, I liked it so much, I asked her to help me find the author, who was Brindley Goodger. Brindley Goodger wrote what I am about to read to you, and she gave me permission to share it with you tonight. And um, I hope this gives you comfort. I hope this gives you some solace um, for the pain you might be in for the disappointment, the fear, all of that, all of that stuff. So, okay, this is what she says, Brindley Goodger. The morning after Hillary's stunning, unbelievable loss, I was shaken to my core. My belief in her and my faith in my country to have the sense to elect the smartest, most experienced and frankly the ballsiest one of the whole bunch was firm. So what happened? I was up all night trying to reach acceptance of the election results and to determine the reason why. For I believe everything does happen for a reason. Below is what came to me and has provided me with acceptance, not complacency. It has only strengthened my resolve. Perhaps this is an opportunity. Hillary lost. Trump won. I was an emotional wreck last night. All my friends have been crying. I was, too, unable to stop. I was on the verge of a full panic. I was ready to go drink to cope. Then I was in denial. There had to be a mistake. The voting machines were hacked. They only counted a third of Florida. Then I had a realization. Winning probably would have been the worst thing for Hillary. Please stay with me here, Brindley Goodger says. Please stay with me. Have, listen, hear me out. This is this is her this is her thought. The GOP kept the House and the Senate. They were already making plans for more hearings over every single thing they think the woman has ever done. They vowed to not pass any of her legislation. They wanted to keep the Supreme Court at eight justices. They were even laying groundwork for impeachment, all before she had won the election, much less been sworn in and able to commit an impeachable offense. She would never have been able to govern. They wouldn't have let her, and they would have blamed her. More government shutdowns over the budget unless there were hearings scheduled, of course. It would have been her husband's administration all over again, a thousand times worse. The barrage of assaults, inquisitions, insinuations, accusations on a constant 24-hour news cycle loop could have killed her and likely would have killed Bill. As it is, the GOP has the House, the Senate, and Trump. This will be interesting at least and an unmitigated disaster at worst, infighting, blame, retaliation, and on and on. This period will be unproductive and it will suck for most Americans, but in two years the swamp can be truly drained and the Democrats can take the Senate and possibly the House and lay the groundwork for the future working across the aisle cooperating. The schism in the GOP will cause its own destruction. Everyone sees that coming. It's likely true for the Democrats as well. The country will recognize the two-party system has reached its inevitable demise. The system as it is will crumble to the earth to blow away in a toxic cloud of dust. But from the ash, leaders will rise from all parties and independents, different backgrounds and experience, and they will work together out of necessity at first, only to realize that they are on the brink of something amazing and begin again. To save our government, it must be burned to the ground, figuratively speaking. What rises from the ashes, the best, the truest, the smartest, the most innovative from across the parties will realize that working together, respecting differences of opinion, and learning from each other through healthy debate is what our forefathers intended. All working with the common goal of repairing our country, taking care of our citizens, and fostering trust and confidence in the government again. Realizing that truly, we are stronger together. God bless you, Hillary, and may God bless America. So that was Brindley Goodger. And I say again, what we focus on manifests. Our perceptions shape our reality. So like I said at the top of the show, let go of all the fear. Start planning the future. This is what we have to do. We have to organize. We have to become activated. And, you know, maybe we have been given a gift because we obviously have found out, I think more people have, are catching on than ever before, The trickle-down economics of the Republicans does not work, and the neoliberalism of the Democrats does not work either. And and as I said before, too, let me just repeat some of these articles that are on my Facebook page. If you catch them soon, uh, you should be able to find them before they scroll too far down the page, or you can Google for them as well. Uh, Robert Reich uh, has an article in The Guardian. The Dems once represented the working class, not anymore. And that is so true. You hear it all in the title there. The Democrats have been looking out for the corporations, not you and me. Naomi Klein wrote the Democrats' embracing of neoliberalism that won it for Trump. Again, neoliberalism. It's about supporting the corporations just like the Republicans do. No one's been looking out for the working class, the middle class. So that's Naomi Klein, Robert Reich. They're both on The Guardian. And... um, democracy now you can find glenn greenwald he's got an article about why sanders was uh, stronger than clinton to beat um... to beat trump at this time because everyone is so anti-establishment and sanders is not status quo sanders was not establishment he was democratic socialist and that's about the workers not about the corporations and glenn greenwald's other article the failed policies of the democratic party So if you really do want to understand what happened, if you don't want to just listen to the simplistic explanations of the corporate media that it was all about sexism and racism, read these articles. Educate yourself so you know what's going on, so that next time, next time, you will be voting for your economic interests. All right. Well, that will about do it for us tonight, dear friends. I want to thank Jack Dempsey again for bringing us uh, the incredible works of Barbara Moore. And um, I am going to go ahead and uh, call it a night. I want to thank you all for your listener loyalty, as always. Uh, remember to be back with me next Wednesday when Barbara Wilder is going to talk about Money as Love, Transforming the Energy Around Money from Fear and Lack to Love and Abundance. And as we go forward into the week, remember, what we nurture and tend, it thrives, and what we neglect, it withers. And that uh, uh, you can apply that to all facets of your life. May Goddess embrace you all in her golden wings, and I'll just let you listen to a little bit of Abigail Spinner McBride uh, in her homage to Sekhmet. Uh, our warrior goddess, our mother, uh, our lady of tenacity manifested because we certainly need that energy of Sekmet in the days ahead.